This is a recording of a live Resolution Foundation event. We hope you find it some combination of interesting or entertaining. To read the research and access the event slides referenced in this episode, please visit the events section of our website. Good morning, welcome to this. <coughs> I'm overcome with emotion about it. This Resolution Foundation event on mortgaged millennials to bitterly cold boomers, the, uh, uh, the uh, introduction of our annual generational audit. You're going to hear first from Molly Broom, who has uh, played a leading role in preparing our analysis. We'll then hear from Caroline Abrahams, charity director at Age UK, and finally from Neil Hudson, the, US, the UK housing market analyst at Residential Analysts. Uh, and Molly, over to you. Thank you, David. Um, and so I'm going to provide a, a brief summary of our key findings from the fourth intergenerational audit, uh, which provides a comprehensive assessment of how different age groups are experiencing the cost of living crisis. Um, I should just mention there's lots more in the report. Um, I haven't been able to get through it all today, so I really do encourage you all to go and go and read it. Um, I'd like to first thank my co-authors at the foundation, particularly Sophie Hale, and also our partners in the ESRC Connecting Generations Research Programme for their input and advice throughout the project. So to start off, uh, we are currently at the start of what is likely to be a long-lasting cost of living crisis. And a main driver of this is higher energy prices. Everyone will spend more on energy bills this year, with a typical household bill 83% higher than on pre-crisis levels. But it's the middle aged who are expected to spend the most on energy this year. The typical household energy bill for someone aged 50 to 64 is expected to be around £2,300, up by around £1,000 on pre-crisis levels. But when you look at energy spend as a share of disposable income, it is those of pension age that are expected to see the biggest income hit this winter, as they tend to spend a higher share of their income on energy bills. And this is really important in the context of affordability. Those aged 75 and above are expected to spend 8% of their income on energy this financial year, up from around 5% in 2019-20. There are several reasons why older age groups will spend a higher share of their income on energy bills this year. Firstly, older age groups tend to live in larger homes. 40% of households headed by a person aged 65 and above live in a house with at least 90 square metres of usable floor area, compared to just 14% of households headed by a person aged 16 to 29. What was previously seen as an advantage living in a large detached house has left older age groups more exposed to rising energy prices this winter because essentially they have more space to heat. Secondly, older age groups tend to live in less energy efficient homes with only a third of older households living, um, living in a home with an EPC rating of C or above. Naturally, this evidence suggests that the government should be prioritising older age groups when designing energy um, support for their energy bills. But the impacts of this crisis are much more nuanced. 
Our analysis suggests that it's younger generations who may be struggling the most to cope with rising energy bills for two key reasons. Firstly, young people are more exposed to prepayment meters. Almost one in five households headed by a person aged 16 to 29 were on a prepayment meter for their gas or, or electricity. And this is compared to about one in 20 for households headed by a person aged 65 and above. And this is really important because those on prepayment meters are particularly at risk of cash flow problems this winter, as they cannot spread this winter's energy cost surge over the whole year as a whole, as those on direct debits can. Secondly, older age groups tend to have a larger savings buffer to, to draw on to cover an unexpected expense or higher costs such as rising energy bills. Over two thirds of people in their 20s had savings of less than one month's income, leaving them particularly exposed this winter. So the government has responded to rising cost pressures with a substantial package of support that will help offset some of the rising energy prices across all age groups. Overall, the expected gain from the EPG and the direct cost of living payments is relatively even across all age groups. The middle age who spend the most on energy are set to gain the most in cash terms from the EPG, but the over 65s have been compensated the most through uh, the direct cost of living support payments. But this is not the only form of financial support for households. Um, during his time as Chancellor, Rishi Sunak um, announced that an increase in the national insurance rate threshold. And since then, separately, the government has decided to reverse the national insurance rate rise that was introduced in April this year. These two policies have skewed support towards the middle-aged with those aged 65 and above now set to receive £500 less than the middle age on average. However, we shouldn't look at these short-term cost of living support measures in isolation. The government has announced several other tax and benefit changes this parliament that will affect household incomes. And this too will have an intergenerational skew. Despite gaining the most from the short-term cost of living support measures, by 2025-26, it is the middle age that will see their household incomes fall the most as a result of the freeze in, on income tax thresholds. While those aged 65 and above will also see a fall in income in the same year, they will be least affected by long, these longer term policy changes, seeing an income fall of just half that experienced by the middle aged. And this skew of policy favouring those aged 65 and above is reinforced when we look at changes to working age benefits and the state pension since 2010. We find that pensioners are on average £666 a year better off as a result of changes to the state pension since 2010, while non-pensioners are on average £816 a year worse off as a result of changing to, uh, changes to working age benefits. And this has contributed to the gap between typical pensioner and non-pensioner incomes closing, with the poorest 20th of pensioners actually now better off than the poorest 20th of non-pensioners. But there are also other cost pressures looming beyond this winter. In response to rising prices, the Bank of England has responded by rapidly raising interest rates. And this will have consequences too in the coming months and years, particularly for those with mortgages. 
Here we can see that it's the middle-aged who are most exposed to higher mortgage payments as a result of higher interest rates. And this is because they are old enough to have uh, bought a house and have a mortgage, but they are not old enough to have paid it off in full. Um, more than half of households aged 35 to 44, uh, to 54, sorry, had a mortgage on their homes. This long-term generational trend of declining home, home ownership among young people has meant that they are generally less exposed to rising interest rates. However, the small subset of young homeowners that have managed to get on the housing ladder face the biggest risks from higher interest rates as they tend to be earlier on in their mortgage term with, when interest payments make up a higher proportion of their mortgage. Households headed by a 25 to 34 year old face paying an additional 8% of their incomes on their mortgage by, on average by the end of 2026. And this rise in interest rates mean that those who have purchased a home in the last five years now face twice the real lifetime interest rate cost than they may have expected and budgeted for uh, given the low and stable interest rate environment in which they purchased their house. As this chart shows, those who bought a house in 2022 could see the real lifetime interest rate cost increasing from £74,000 to £153,000. There is also another risk to rising interest rates. All else equal, interest rates have a negative relationship with asset prices. And again, I should mention we've got a whole other chapter in the report which looks at the impact of falls on asset prices on generational wealth. So again, another plug there to go and, to go and read the full report. Um, a range of forecasts suggest that house prices could fall somewhere, between, somewhere in the region of around 10%, pushed down by higher mortgage payments and also lower disposable income. In our analysis, we use Lloyd's central forecast of an 8% fall in house prices. If house prices fall, then so does equity. As young homeowners tend to be earlier on in their mortgage term, a fall in house price is likely to result in them going into negative equity or high-risk loan-to-value ratios. If house prices fall by 8%, 4% of young homeowners could go into negative equity and a further 13% could go into low equity. And this will have serious consequences as it may prevent them from accessing cheaper mortgage deals at the end of their mortgage term. So we've spoken a lot about how the risks, there are lots of risks to young homeowners, but there are a lot of young people that are prospective first-time buyers. Taken together, we estimate that falling house prices and higher interest on savings could reduce the amount of years required to save for a deposit from around 15 years in 2022 to 13 years in 2023 and 2024. Although I should say that this does assume that people will still be able to save and we know that that is becoming increasingly difficult as the cost of living crisis really starts to bite. In addition to bringing down the number of years to save for a deposit, the combination of higher interest rates and a sustained fall in house prices could reduce the real lifetime costs for first-time buyers. Our analysis finds that despite facing higher interest rates in the near term, if house prices fall by 8%, then the real cost to first-time buyers in 2024 could fall to £282,000, the lowest that they've been since 2017. 
And if house prices were to fall further by around 18%, which is Lloyd's worst case scenario, the real cost to an average first time buyer could fall to its lowest level in a decade. Few years to save for a deposit and a lower real lifetime cost for buying a house should help first time buyers get on their housing ladder. But we shouldn't get overexcited about this because as you can see from this chart here, the cost of buying a home is still considerably higher than those faced by previous generations in the 70s, 80s and 90s. So looking ahead to the autumn statement this week, the cost of living support measures announced this year will help households with the rising cost of energy this winter. But the Chancellor must now show that he's committed to helping families through the cost of living crisis next year too, as prices will remain high and income squeezed. Experience from re recent fiscal events means that the government will be mindful of the interaction between fiscal and monetary policy. But it will also be important for the Chancellor to consider some of these intergenerational issues raised in the report when outlining new support measures to take hold after April. And at the same time, uh, the Chancellor should be aware uh, of looking beyond the current crisis to address longer term intergenerational trends such as stall paid progression among the young and the retrenchment of working age benefits. Very good. <coughs> Thank you, Molly. Thank you very much indeed. And I think that what you just heard from Molly shows the value of applying generational analysis to the hot topics of the day and they covering both the impact of interest rate increases on housing and access to housing and also the generational impact of the increase in energy costs with this fascinating observation that initially it's the older generation with large uh, less insulated homes who look to face the biggest cost but actually when you dig down into their underlying resilience and incomes it looks as if it may actually be younger generations who find it hardest to meet the bills. Uh, so do come to us with your questions. Uh, we're on the hashtag generational costs. There's uh, some excellent questions already arising, but do uh, join in via Q&A. We're now going to hear from our two panelists. First from Caroline Abrahams, who's been a policy advisor, a senior civil servant, and is now charity director at Age UK. Caroline, thanks for joining Thank us. Over to you. Lovely. And I'll sit here rather yes, than um, going to the podium. Um, I'm going to start off by saying what I always say at this event. I've been at this event before, which is actually, I think it's people on very low incomes of all ages who are the ones with the most to worry about right now. And actually, it kind of cuts across the piece, really. Um, I mean, just thinking about older people, for example, agree with an awful lot of what Holly said from her analysis. Absolutely right that there are a lot of older people living in larger homes, which are very drafty. Um, and they're often owner occupiers who, who, who have more money when they were in younger years and are struggling to maintain their homes and to, you know, heat them even in, in a normal year, let alone with these extraordinary energy prices that everyone's having to cope with. Um, I think there are other issues, though, that differentiate older people from other age groups when it comes to energy. The first is that, as you might know from your own families, old people feel the cold more, actually. What happens is, as you get older, it becomes harder to, to, for your body to adjust to different temperatures. That's why the extreme heat is a danger to older people, but the extreme cold is, is as well. And therefore, actually, it's really important for health reasons that people keep their 
homes reasonably warm once they get to later life. The reason for that is that if they don't, if you're chronically cold for a long time, then that makes it more likely you'll have a heart attack or a stroke. It's not actually so much uh, that you're going to get, it, it's not cold as such, it's what it does to your cardiovascular system. So there's a really serious health issue to be borne in mind as well. Larger savings buffer? Well, I'm sure that's what the stats have told you, but of course there are loads and loads of older people who haven't got a bean. Uh, and they've got, there are quite a few older people who've only got a few beans and they're particularly likely to be single women um, because even today, even, even though life has changed and more, more women are in the labour market and having the opportunity to put money aside, there's a, there's a huge group of people who are older um, who never got those opportunities and they're, they're, they're stopping work with very little money behind them. And of course, particularly widows. Um, of course, there are lots of men who haven't got much dosh either. Um, and then there's also the issue of behaviour, which is really important for us at Age UK, which is that we know that um, many older people are very reluctant to ever go into debt. Um, and lots of the, because of the scale of these energy price rises, there are people who never dreamed they'd be in financial difficulty at all, always expected to be really quite comfortable in later life, who are finding that this is a problem. And because people are so worried about going into debt in later life, what they're tending to do is to self-ration. So, for example, we're hearing from lots and lots of older people at the moment who are not using their heating. I mean, we're fortunate, aren't we? It's been, it's been a fantastic autumn. It's been particularly warm. But, but we have had some cold, colder temperatures too, and bearing in mind the other issues that I've raised, um, there are definitely lots of older people who are not running their heating and are intending not to uh, use it very much in, in the winter. So we're, we're kind of imploring people to talk to us, make sure they're claiming all their benefits, but please keep warm because it's really good for you. But that's why the triple lock is so important for older people, because if people know they're going to have a bit more money come the spring, it'll give them more confidence to run the heating during the winter, because uh, that's how older people are. That's how they think. They definitely look ahead and are really prudent. I just wanted to say a few things too about, about younger people. Um, I mean, clearly this is a, these energy bill uh, price rises are so extraordinary that they're hitting people of all age groups. And uh, it's not only older people who have those potential health effects from being cold, it's babies and very young children as well. So there are equally serious issues here, I think, for um, families with young children. Um, for those on very low incomes, of course, they're dealing with you know, the lack of generosity and the framing of um, universal credit. Um, there are lots of people who are having deductions, so they're, so they're really struggling too. This, I'm not remotely coming here today to say that uh, somehow it's all okay for younger people. It absolutely isn't. And that's why we at HUK have been really pleased to be able to work on a cross-sector basis with lots of other charities, um, arguing not only for the triple lock to be retained at the autumn statement, but that benefits should rise. Because that wouldn't only help older people on the lowest incomes uh, who are dependent on things like pension credit, it would also help families with children. And we think that's really, really important. Um, there are some other groups, it's worth, there are some nuances around how the energy schemes have been working too, which are important to recognise. Uh, absolutely right that people on prepay meters are, are, are at a huge disadvantage. They're, it's disgraceful really, they're, they're paying more for the energy than you and I who aren't on a prepay meter, yet they're on the lowest incomes. Um, uh, and I mean that, that should stop and it's, it's really disgraceful that that happens. But also the energy scheme support that's around is harder to get if you're on a prepay meter. So it's a sort of double whammy, uh, which is really unhelpful. And there are other groups who are uh, struggling too. If you live in Northern Ireland, there's been a problem getting um, energy support through to those people because there isn't a sitting government at the moment. If you're living off grid, which lots of people do in the countryside, 
there isn't a, at the moment an effective scheme to help you. And if you're living in a park home, a static mobile home, which is more likely to be older people, uh, the support isn't there in the same way either. And there's been some extra support, hasn't there, um, offered to people with disabilities, but it's only £150, I think, which is better than nothing, but it's absolutely not going to make the difference for people who need to run machinery. And that, of course, happens for older people as well. Um, finally, uh, another thing that we and many others are calling for right across the sector is is better insulation for our homes because that would help people of all ages. And, you know, we, as I say, we have really drafty old housing stock in this country and we've essentially wasted a number of years when we should have been investing as a country much more in that. It would also help us, of course, to reach our green objectives. Um, so, yeah, I'm sorry to be gloomy on a Monday morning, but actually we're all struggling, aren't we? Particularly those on the lowest incomes. Thank you. Well, thank you very much, Caroline. And uh, your final comment about insulation did remind me of an exchange after one of the big packages we had uh, earlier this year to help people with energy costs, which was entirely focused on transfer payments. And I did say to a senior official from the Treasury, it was odd that there was absolutely nothing about insulation. Yeah. And the answer I got was quite revealing. It was, well, we are so short of skilled people, we weren't confident we got the capacity to install things like that, which is so frustrating and is one of the themes of our economic inquiry, though uh, perhaps a subject for another day. Uh, let's now hear from Neil Hudson, who is a visiting fellow in real estate and planning at Henley Business School uh, and also is housing market analyst at Residential Analysts. Neil, over to you. Thank you. Um, so there's been a great deal of uncertainty about the housing market and it's looking increasingly likely that there's going to be a downturn of some sort. We're not quite sure exactly what scale that is, but looking at previous downturns, there's been three pretty consistent themes in terms of uh, the lead up and, uh, and resulting downturn, and that's been uh, rising interest rates, higher energy costs, and policy mistakes. And we've ticked off all three of those this year. And um, the exact scale of the downturn is gonna be incredibly dependent on how high mortgage rates stay and for how long they have, it looks like they're coming off their very high levels that they were the six and a half percent we saw immediately following the mini budget and I suspect you could probably get around about a five and a half now but that's still substantial given that a lot of people were getting mortgages of sub two percent back at the beginning of the year so as the analysis shows there's going to be a pretty substantial payment shock and I think one of the the challenges as well is when we look at the people who are going to be impacted is as the report points out the average first-time buyer now borrows around three and a half times their income, which is substantially higher than previous generations, and it means they're much more exposed to changes in interest rates. Now, six and a half percent might not sound very high for some of you who were around in the, uh, uh, in the housing market in the 1980s, and, but actually the payment shock is going to be similar because they do borrow those <coughs> much higher levels. And actually, when you then look at the distribution of the loan to income ratios. Thankfully, there's not that many people who borrow more than four and a half times their income because of the soft cap on lenders being able to do so. But there's been an incredible bunching up of borrowers taking out mortgages up to that four and a half times cap. And so uh, around about a third of uh, mortgage purchasers, so people buying a home with a mortgage, have a loan to income ratio of four times their income or higher. And that makes them even more exposed to um, higher mortgage rates. So rather than the average 8% uh, shock to their income, it's more like a 10% or higher. So there, there will be a load of people that 
uh, as they roll off of their fixed rate mortgage, find themselves being hit by much higher mortgage payments. And now on their own, it's probably not quite enough to contribute to a downturn. And a lot of these borrowers have been stress tested when they took out their new mortgage under the new regulatory environment. All of the normal signs of mortgage stress in the market that we normally have, very high loan to value mortgages, so borrowing lots relative to your property price, the kinds of lending that we saw back in 2007 and the 1980s where you sell certification, you make up your own income. There's none of that around. So in theory, we're kind of much more um, resilient, but that loan to income ratio is a key point, but also it's everything else on top of it. It's the energy crisis as well that uh, is going to make it. It's coming off of the back of the pandemic and the impact that's had to people's savings, particularly at the lower end, rather than the people who have built up those large amounts at the higher end. And again, I'd like to kind of highlight within that, clearly there's a big issue with people who have taken out mortgages more recently, but there's particular groups as well that will be even more impacted. Um, there's uh, particularly looking at home ownership, shared owners are being hit by both higher mortgage rates, but also their rents are indexed against RPI. So they're seeing big increases in their rents uh, for a tenure that's already had a lot of problems. And uh, help to buy equity loan is another one that it could be quite a significant problem. Now, a lot of the earlier cohorts of help to buy equity loan buyers have actually managed to pay off their uh, equity loan, but there still is uh, quite a chunk of people out there who will be exposed, particularly those who have used help to buy equity loan London, where they've borrowed 40% uh, they've had an equity loan of 40% of the property price rather than the more normal 20. And that probably overlaps with some of those very high loan to income ratios in outer London, where we're going to see people very heavily hit by the um, mortgage rates. Now, we're quite right to worry about the hit that's happening to mortgage homeowners uh, with higher mortgage rates. But we're actually worrying about their housing costs hitting a level that renters have actually had their payments at for the last decade or more. And so actually, we're, we're quite right to worry, but there's a whole group of people there, as the report shows, that have been excluded from home ownership and have been struggling with these higher housing costs for a long time. And so the priority there, and it, again, within that, there's the subgroups, there's lower income households, people stuck in renting in old age into retirement with a lack of income. Uh, there are people who are being hit by the uh, housing benefit caps, and, and local, uh, the failure to uplift local housing allowance. Um, there are, and then when you look at particular groups, you mentioned uh, uh, lone women, single parents, when you look at the affordability of them in terms of the rents they paid, they were in trouble before the pandemic. It's a wonder how they're even coping now as we're facing this situation. Students is becoming an increasing issue. There's been the stories in Durham about people queuing up uh, because of the lack of stock. So there's the kind of, there's these aggregate uh, issues facing everyone, but then within each of these groups, there are then these uh, pockets of people who are going to be much more heavily hit. And I think the challenge from a policy perspective, and it kind of talk, it, it links into the long-term issues, is we're going to be facing some difficult decisions about what we do to support people. And one of the challenges is there is an opportunity here. Clearly, if if uh, house prices do come down, in terms of enabling more people to access home ownership, but we need to make sure that. Uh, in trying to help those people already existing in home ownership, we need to make sure that we don't make it worse for those people coming further behind. So it's not just a case of simply reinflating house prices back up to a level that allow people to uh, 
uh, to to kind of see their their housing equity rebound. We need to ensure that uh, the kind of the longer term objectives of uh, what we're trying to do in housing are a feature of the policy response to the challenges we're facing right now. Thank you very much, Neil, and a really important point about balancing the, the focus on home ownership with the pressures facing renters. And we're going to turn to that in some of the questions that have already started coming in. Uh, I'm going to begin by turning to Professor Jane Falkingham. She's Professor of Demography uh, and International Social Policy at the University of Southampton. Jane is also leading the ESRC project, Connecting Generations. Uh, and we at Resolution Intergenerational Centre are delighted to be working with Jane and the team at Southampton on that project. And indeed, they've, they've helped on this audit. So, Jane, any comments, observations you want to make? Thank you, David. Well, uh, first of all, can I just start off by congratulating Molly and Sophie and the rest of the team on a fantastic report. I think it's really fantastic to see it coming out. And uh, really, uh, the team pivoted away from the, the traditional report to actually focus on, on the cost of living crisis. And I think the analysis is, is really great. And I'd also echo Caroline's point, however, that uh, actually at this moment in time, perhaps we shouldn't be focusing on different generations. We really need to be focusing on on those on lowest income across the generations. So I was just going to ask the panel, really, uh, for their reflections on how the generations might actually be assisting each other in the cost of living crisis. Yeah. Well, that's, that's a, let's go to the panel. And that actually ties in with one of the online questions here, which is really the same. Surely age is not the most important factor here, but people's ability to afford the increasing costs they face, regardless of their age. Caroline. Yeah. Over to you. Yeah, I think you're right. I th and I think there are lots of people, lots of strong families out there which are trying to help each other, whether that's slightly better off older people who are passing money down or indeed the other way around. Um, I think the problem is, though, uh, you know, and you as an academic will know much more about this than me, that very often the people we're worrying about the most are, you know, there are poor older people and their families are poor as well and they live in disadvantaged areas. Um, so because of the lack of intergenerational mobility, really. Um, so from that point of view, you know, you've got lots of people all struggling together, I think, quite often. At which point, you know, organisations like, you know, the voluntary sector, the amount of help that's coming through the state as well, become tremendously important. And I think we know that there too, there's a bit of an inverse care law and there's there's more vibrant community activity in better off areas. So, you know, whichever way you look at it, inequality seems to compound itself. Neil? I think especially when you look at it from a housing perspective, it's very tempted to be kind of blinded by the distortions in the wealth inequality you see across generations with older people owning the vast majority of housing wealth. The problem is when you actually look at it in more detail, there's an awful lot of them and the vast majority of older people live in average priced homes. They're not, they don't have housing wealth in the millions. It's uh, you know, kind of 250, 300,000. That makes it very difficult to uh, use that wealth in a way that, you know, downsizing is an is a obvious go-to example, but the economics of downsizing don't work when you live in a £250,000 house. There's no opportunities for you to move into it. And using that wealth to do things like uh, improve the housing stock is very difficult. And there, there has been the growth in equity release products and others, but they're going to be facing a pretty challenging time coming forward, and that's not necessarily the, the right... Uh, the, the right route to go down at, in a period where you're facing falling house prices. 
So I think it's, uh, it's definitely a, a big challenge. And uh, I think I've kind of slightly said, I, I'm not entirely sure how you go about it, but the, you know, some of the obvious answers aren't quite as easy as they might appear at first glance. Now, Molly, you're the custodian mm -hmm. of this analysis, which Jane has endorsed. What, what yes. are your observations? Well, there's two on? things in the report, I think, that we um, would like to draw attention to in terms of the relationship between generations. So going back to the uh, lack of financial resilience and the lack of savings, uh, lack of a savings buffer that young people have, um, there's also evidence that suggests that young people are more likely to rely on their family and friends um, in the face of an unexpected expense. So that shows that it is really important to have those intergenerational relationships. Um, but I should just mention that it is probably really bad for social mobility because as um, Caroline mentioned, those people that have rich parents are more likely to be wealthy themselves. And so um, that option to rely on family and friends might not be available to all young people. Um, there's also a second point in the report that also goes back to um, the housing point that many young people are actually still living with their parents. So around a third of people aged um, 20 to 34 still live with their parents. So in some ways they are um, more sheltered from the cost of living crisis uh, as you know, they won't be, um, or they may be, but less likely to be facing really high rent prices and um, less likely to be dealing with uh, higher mortgage uh, higher mortgage costs. Um, so there is some uh, evidence that young people will be somewhat sheltered or more sheltered uh, by living at home with their parents. But again, this is really bad for their um, mobility and um, it, sh it shouldn't be a thing to be celebrated if uh, they want to live away from home, but they've just got no other choice. Yeah, and then that's a really important point and brings out, I think, the all the, 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 the subtle economic and social links here because if anything young people living with their parents is a growing trend it seems if anything to be associated with less affluent less well-paid younger people being particularly likely to stay at home and again if you pivot to the framework of analysis in our economic inquiry one of the things that we're finding and one well, indeed the explanations of a poor pay performance especially amongst young people is that they're less geographically mobile they're moving jobs less frequently there uh, and it does look as if they're less likely to move away from home so staying with the parents is lower and the lower mobility as, Mo as molly said associated with that may in turn be linked to some of the problems in our labor market um, and of course, you can always, on the wider challenge to a generational analysis, um, of course, you can always just focus on income. On the other hand, there are, as an absolute minimum, some quite interesting and important life cycle effects here. Uh, and something else that is brought out in the report is this interesting point that actually, despite the difficulties of younger people getting started on the housing ladder, if anything, young people how the ratio of housing wealth to pensions wealth is higher for young people. A greater proportion of younger people's wealth is in housing, whereas for the older generation, a greater proportion is in pensions because of the life cycle effect that you, you really are not going to be able to build up any significant pension savings or pension claims when you're younger. So in that respect, um, oddly enough, young people's wealth holdings are more exposed to house price falls than some other age groups. And so I do think looking at this through the prism of where you are in the life cycle, uh, as well as the generation you belong to, so what economic effects you've lived through, 
does add weight and a bit of uh, patina, a bit of depth to the analysis of what's going on. Now I'm going to turn to, I'm going to launch our uh, poll of our participants and it links to something that Neil has already said. So I'm going to be asked for Neil's observations on the, on the question we've had. So this is a poll that we are putting, putting up asking what you expect to happen over the next 10 years to home ownership rates for young people. Whether you think that home ownership rates are going to go up or flatline or go down. And we'll give you a few minutes to give, put in your answers on that. But I'm going to put that preoccupation with home ownership alongside a, a question that we've had, which is particularly about the pressures um, are of rents. In this question from Jamie says, as well as energy bills and mortgages, private rents are increasing rapidly from already high levels, causing insecurity, making it possible to make ends meet. And how can the government help here? So while we have a poll question out there on home ownership, let's for a moment actually here focus on the pressures facing people in rented accommodation. So I'll hear from you first, perhaps, and then from our other contributors. What's your observations on that? So we normally see a spike in private renting during a housing downturn as people are excluded from home ownership because mortgage lenders pull back. First-time buyers are your riskiest borrowers, so that they're the ones you're least likely to lend to. But we're kind of entering this period with private renters having already seen a period where their housing costs are very high, but rents are now rising double-digit annual changes uh, in a lot of markets and that seems to be a combination of factors and one of the real challenges with uh, private renting is there's a real lack of decent data, publicly, publicly available data out there on it to really understand exactly what's happening. But it looks like there's been a big rebound in demand from private renters, so people looking to rent their homes, um, perhaps some people moving out from the family home following the pandemic. Um, also, we've seen a kind of resurgence in, uh, mentioned students earlier, so both domestically and internationally. But also, interestingly, on the supply side of it, there's a real lack of homes available to rent in the market. And um, kind of a lot of the stats that I've seen suggest that the amount of stock on the markets may be around half the levels that it normally is. And um, the kind of go-to explanation for that is landlords selling up. And there does appear to have been quite a, land a lot of landlords selling up. Uh, given the pressures that they're facing in terms of higher mortgage rates and uh, increased costs of government regulation. But the data on it is really difficult to actually highlight exactly how much that's happening to any great degree of certainty. And interestingly, the number of outstanding buy-to-let mortgages is still continuing to rise, albeit slower than it used to. And so that's probably an explanation. And possibly the, uh, the impact of short-term lets, so Airbnb and others taking stock out of the market. Uh, it does also look like tenants are increasingly, existing tenants are increasingly negotiating with their landlords because they're looking at the news flow and going, ah, okay, if you're coming to me with 10%, I'm just gonna pay it because I can't find anything. Um, there's potentially a bit of a race for space. We talked a lot in the housing market about our race for space following the pandemic for home ownership, looking for big houses, but for those who do have the affordability capacity, they're perhaps more interested in living by themselves or just as in a couple rather than in a house share. So we've possibly got 
the same number of renters, but kind of spread across more properties factoring into it. And I think the final point as well on it is this isn't just a UK problem. We like to think a lot of our housing problems are, are our own and we're unique in them. But, you know, from everything from rapidly rising house prices following the pandemic to the issue facing private renters. But actually, there's stories of private renters facing similar problems in the US, in Ireland and uh, a whole load of other markets across the world. Well, thank you. And I'm, you've twice now mentioned this um, as part of your analysis the university student issue. And just to say, I'm, I'm so pleased you focused on that because it is quite an important part of the story. The estimate is that simply the, the demographic pressures and the growth in participation in higher education means that we need an extra 30,000 beds a year, year after year, for people going to university. And there are some quite serious constraints now on meeting that increase in demand, not least that the affordability criterion used for student housing is linked to the value of the maintenance loan that students receive. So the affordability criterion before a university housing developer can move in and provide is now quite severe. So it looks like that market is coming up precisely when demand is rising and has a knock-on effect on everyone else. And I think you and I very much agree with the way you've mentioned that as a factor. Now, um, what else? Uh, any other comments that you would like to make? Well, on that uh, just that obviously lots going on for younger people and renting, as, as our expert here has just explained. Uh, but the interesting thing around older people is that we're instead of in the past seeing a private rental very much as a young person's tenure, there are, there's a quite steep rise in the number from a low base of older people renting, maybe because they can't afford to buy it, they've lost their homes, they had to, you know, give them up. Um, and particularly concentrated, unfortunately, at the bottom of the rental, private rented sector, for whom I think there are issues, of course, of affordability, but there are also big issues of uncertainty, uh, lack of security of tenure, um, that kind of thing. So again, you know, there's very much common cause between younger and older people's organisations about trying to improve the security of tenure for people, making it harder for people to uh, be evicted unless there's a good reason to do so. But yep, um, we're, we're joining you in the, the private rented sector, I'm afraid. Uh, Molly, do you want to comment on that and also bring out the findings in the report on the space occupied by um, different yep. groups? Neil has referred to that. Yeah, um, so I think Neil gave a really good summary. So um, as there's issues with data, but we're finding that new tenancies uh, are, or new tenancies are seeing rent increases of around 10%. But there is anecdotal evidence that, you know, these could be as high as 30 or 40% in some cases. So um, it is a really difficult time for private renters and the decline in home ownership among the young people have meant that young people are more likely to be in the privately rented sector, so they are particularly exposed. Um, there's a number of reasons why, or which Neil has summarised, um, why rents are increasing. We think it's uh, possibly because landlords are passing on higher mortgage costs to their, to their tenants, um, but also the, uh, the stock issue that Neil has raised. Um, and as Caroline said, we'd really like to, or, um, to sh be sure that landlords are not evicting tenants um, as if, for example, if they've tied in a, um, a long-term contract at a, a perhaps a lower rent, evicting these tenants to then um, get higher rental payments um, from new tenants. Um, on the space side of things, we've looked at space for owner occupiers. And what we found is that um, young homeowners have uh, lost 
uh, the amount that they've owned has decreased um, since, the, since the middle of the 90s. And they've lost about the space of around Milton Keynes, so it's 70 squared kilometres. Um, and that's driven by uh, largely um, less people owning their own homes um, and also sort of population changes as well. There you are. That's the kind of vivid fact you get from Resolution <laughs> Young people have lost Milton Keynes. <laughs> uh, now, let's go back to the poll question now. Let's see the results from the question about home ownership. And obviously, I'm going to want our panellists to comment, and then we'll move on. Um, but uh, interestingly, will home ownership rates rise or fall for young people? Uh, pretty close. A lot think it'll fall. Home ownership rates will fall, and or also flat line, very similar. Um, fewer people think it'll nudge up, and virtually nobody thinks it'll shoot up. So, of course, we have seen a modest increase in, in uh, home ownership rates amongst young people in the past years. It hit a low of about 25% and has increased a bit. But nobody here seems to think that that's a really strong, sustained trend that's going to enable them to catch up with the kind of home ownership rates of some previous generations at their age. Um, Neil, as again, you're the uh, housing analyst. Your observations, do you agree? Where, where would you have, how would you have voted in that poll? I probably would have been somewhere between nudge up and flatline on the 10-year point, but I think there's very much a kind of short-term versus long-term point there. In the short term, it's probably going to fall. As I mentioned earlier, first-time buyers will be the first people to be excluded from the housing market in the event of a downturn. But then potentially, depending on the scale of it, and as the analysis shows, they may then be in a slightly better position once the recovery begins. And uh, my hope would be that because of the type of downturn we're facing, that it's the that lenders might be more active in coming back to the market. And if we can incentivize them to be prioritizing first-time buyers rather than buy-to-let landlords this time around, then that potentially could help over the 10-year period to actually begin to uh, see a bit of a recovery in the home ownership rate. Thank you. Uh, Caroline? Well, I'd, I'd just make the obvious point, which uh, actually the Resolution Foundation has, has makes a lot, which is we've been getting poorer as a nation and we're going to go on getting poorer for a bit. And so unless there are, unless the, obviously what happens within the housing market and the incentives and disincentives that are plugged in there make a big difference. But otherwise, I imagine there are quite a few people who are hoping to buy quite soon who are thinking now they're going to struggle to do so for one reason or, or other to do with their own financial circumstances and, and, the, and the broader context. So um, I'm not surprised there, wasn't, there weren't many buyers for the um, shoot up um, <laughs> <laughs> ranking. Uh, and Molly? Um, yeah, I think those are, are the, of, uh, both really good points. As, as we discussed in the presentation, we think that there could be um, a, a nudge up in terms of people buying their homes just from uh, lower lifetime costs, uh, less time to save for a deposit. But we do also uh, mention in the report that it's still a big barrier to many homeowners. Um, a lot still will find it really difficult to save for a deposit and 13 years is still a really long time to save money for a deposit. And also, as uh, Caroline said, we are getting poorer, so many people will be excluded because they won't be able to afford their mortgage payments, particularly in the next two years when um, interest rates are much higher, making it much more difficult. Uh, I think we've got a stat in the report that says 
um, to offset the rise in interest cost um, in the first year, house prices will have to fall by 40%, which is probably just mm. not going to happen. So, um, yeah, I think it's still it will still be really challenging for a lot of young um, prospective first-time buyers. Thank you. Thanks. And I'm going to turn to a question from uh, Andrew Dixon online. And also, incidentally, I'm going to give our physical people here in the audience another opportunity. But Andrew Dixon, who's someone we know at Resolution and who um, uh, campaigns on this issue, is asking how can property tax reform support younger uh, generations. And there's even been some speculation in the papers in the last few days that one thing that the Chancellor might be looking at for his package on Thursday is, uh, as a minimum, uh, collecting more council tax from people in very high-value properties. So is, is property tax reform something that we should have on the agenda? Neil, do you want to comment on that one? Yes, yeah, so I think there were some stories around using, was it increasing the allowance around council tax to um, offset social care. And I think the, the challenge is property taxation is a bit of a mess when it comes to residential property in this country. And we've got stamp duty, uh, which is a stupid tax. And it's certainly not how you would go around designing a tax. And so potentially reforming property taxation and uh, tying in stamp duty and council tax into a tax actually on the property value rather than on transactions is attractive and I can see a lot of the, the positives for it, but I suspect there's uh, some concerns around particularly older people getting uh, trapped and being faced with uh, having costs that they can't afford uh, to service, particularly if they're stuck in higher value property. So it's definitely not an easy solution, but I suspect the problem is we're not really facing any easy solutions at the moment. So <laughs> it's something that we're gonna be increasingly looking at. Mm -hmm. yeah. He's the expert on this. I'm not going to. Yeah, let's let everyone else talk about that one. <laughs> right. I I'll wait for the day when a panelist on any question says that. I'm so <laughs> not obliged to have a view on everything, Molly. Um, yeah, I think there's a wider point on sort of wealth taxes. So, in an early report published this year, we found that the value of household wealth has increased from around three times GDP to around in the 90s to around eight times GDP. Um, today and this is largely driven by the property boom um, but alongside that wealth taxation hasn't kept up in fact it's been broadly stable um, so I think from our perspective we'd really like um, people it, government not to just focus on those that are easy to tax so from raising national insurance but actually tax those people with the wealth um, and who are more able to pay. Uh Thanks. Yes. And, and by the way, I, um, it is worth listening to what Neil has just been saying as well. I should report, come, we at uh, Resolution Foundation, because of the kind of analysis Molly has just referred to, are very interested in if taxes have to rise, then there really should, it's reasonable to expect some contribution from taxes on property or wealth in some form, because despite this massive surge in the value, the percentage of GDP paid in taxes on property has not gone up at all. And I did go and see George Osborne after he stood down as Chancellor and was talking through some of our analysis. And he said, uh, but if you look at what I did to stamp duty, he said, um, if you average out all the different rates, and he didn't make it more complicated, if you average out all the different rates, it, it, it works out as on average about a 7% rate of stamp duty. And the analysis I had from my Treasury officials 
was that on average people move homes every seven years. I regarded it therefore as a 1% a year property tax, but hidden as a change in stamp duty rates. So he thought he had achieved that through uh, stamp duty. That was his uh, argument. I don't know if it's true. he had true. his numbers wrong there. The, uh, oh, well, he may have. Uh, uh, and he, of course, he didn't say this uh, publicly, but uh, <laughs> there we are. What? Now, I'm going to see if there's someone in the audience who, does, who has a question. And meanwhile, I'm going to try to get back into Slido, which is now asking for a, a code that I don't have. But is there anybody from the audience who wishes to put a question to our panellists? Uh, yes, here. Thank you, uh, Jim from Zurich Insurance. Um, we uh, are, you know, we're a big insurer, particularly of the public estate in the UK. We're, we're particularly concerned about what we can do to help uh, the cost of living. You know, there's, there's concern from people in the industry about people uh, cutting in their insurance because, uh, you know, it's an easy thing to cut. And it, but, but the sort of societal... Um, uh, resilience that is lost by that. What does the panel think about what the government and what the financial services sector can do to help with the cost of living? Thank you. Yeah, Neil, you first. Um, so I, I obviously can't really say much about the insurance perspective, but I think the lessons that we've learned over su successive housing market downturns are were quite apparent during the pandemic, and lenders these days are much, much more willing and uh, and obligated to support their borrowers and to the point where they actually now have to actually you know consider the the borrower's position when they're taking out a mortgage which is not something that always used to happen so and you know they're much we're much less likely to see people in mortgage payment distress end up with their home being possessed th these times around and you know we had the mortgage payment holidays and so I think the f we've already seen both from a policy perspective but also just from the financial industry generally there's a lot more willingness to avoid those worst case scenarios but there still will be people who fall within the gaps there was an FCA report out a week or two ago suggesting that there, w there were still a significant number of uh, financial uh, institutions that had failed their uh, their uh, people who their customers who are in distress by uh, failing to give them the appropriate advice mm. and uh, uh, giving them higher interest rates than they maybe than was ideal. So there's still there's, it's by no means perfect. But so I think we've learned a lot. But there's still it, every crisis it shares a lot of similarities with the last one. But there's always new elements to it. And so I think the priority is going to be flexible and um, and also incredibly respondent to the the needs of your your customers. Mm. Is this a particular pressure for older people, skimping uh, by saving on their insurance costs? Uh, not so, I'm not sure about insurance, but I think more broadly around financial services, clearly um, the greater preparedness to exercise forbearance, as I believe it's called in the industry, is very useful. Um, I think another point, which I certainly we certainly hear at Age UK, and I think is a broader sector point, is it would really help the public if at this time of stress, um, financial services companies and others and utility companies ensured that their customer services were functioning well. A lot of people find it very, very difficult to even establish contact. Uh, yeah. You know, 
con contact centres are often underpersoned, and people end up waiting ages just trying to get through on the phone. And that increases the stress that they're already feeling and may actually, if they can't get through, they may give up. And then that doesn't really help the financial services organisation either. And the third thing I would say, which is particularly relevant to the banks, is that you may have also picked up through the media that there's a greater use of cash at the moment by people of all ages, actually, um, on very low incomes who find cash a much easier way to budget. Um, you know, the pounds in your pocket, at least you can see how you're using it if, you, if you're having to count the pennies. So actually, um, uh, uh, some slowing down at the very least of the closure of branches and the greater avail availability of cash, which I think is being backed up by legislation in due course, um, would be very helpful, I think, at, at this time when so many people on very low incomes are really struggling. Yeah, and I so agree with your, your point about um, if looking back as a, to my experience as a constituency MP, the number of cases which were people who had basically been trying to resolve their problems by phoning the helpline, they never had spoken to the same person mm. twice, they yeah. hadn't got any record of what they had said or what they'd been promised. And often you found yourself almost as a kind of notary, yeah, your job sure was to like, finally yeah. put their case in mm. writing mm. in a way that got sustained attention mm. and they escaped both in public services or private sectors yeah. from the helpline trap i so agree with that now we're going to we're going to we're going to broaden the framework of reference here a really good question just reminding us that we should look beyond the immediate financial metrics of uh, people's finances and the impact of the cost of living crisis and also think more widely of their physical and mental health and how do we think different generations physical and mental health is most affected uh, by this crisis. Ma'am Molly, do you want to set the ball rolling on that? Yeah. Um, so I think there's probably two things to say on um, physical and mental health. So an earlier report that we published this year showed that people that are in arrears are most likely to report um, higher levels of anxiety and lower levels of happiness. Yeah. And as we've shown from our analysis, those people with less savings to draw on to deal with rising energy prices are more likely to fall into arrears. And that, um, from our analysis, is young people, but also lower income people across the board. So um, I think that issue of um, mental health across these groups will be really important in the coming months um, as the cost of living crisis intensifies. Um, we've also got a separate chapter on the, in the report which looks at um, the labour market as well and uh, what's happening to the labour market in the cost of living crisis. Um, and what we find is that there has been an increase in um, economic inactivity among uh, younger people and older people, um, which has largely been driven by um, both groups reporting higher levels of um, long-term sickness and disability. And for the young particularly, we think that that has largely been driven by um, lower levels of uh, or uh, worsening mental uh, mental health. So, um, yeah, there's two things going on there. Interesting. And we're going to come to that labour market issue next. But Caroline, have you got any observations about that? And yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's a, it's really sad, isn't it? Uh, this, this conversation isn't going to get any more cheerful, I'm afraid, as it goes along. Um, for older people, it's really, really important to bear in mind the broader context of the pandemic, um, because unfortunately, it's absolutely clear from the research we and others have carried out that older people emerged from the pandemic much less fit than when they went in. 
um, for whole, all sorts of reasons. This is, of course, assuming they survived it. Um, but, but very often they had health problems which weren't treated during the pandemic. They stayed at home more. They didn't move us around as much. It's, as someone put it to me, it's as though we pressed the fast forward button on ageing. And therefore, health needs gone up. Uh, demand for social care has gone up just at the time when the NHS is really, really struggling. But the, the broader point you make about the impact of being hard up at the moment, at a time when every time you go to the shops, you see the prices are going up again, I think is, is really very significant for people of all ages. And so I'm afraid, yes, we've got a crisis in mental and physical health, arguably, at the moment, um, at just the time when our NHS is struggling the most to be able to respond. Neil? I'll leave that one to the experts. <laughs> uh, I love this respect for expertise. What we stand for at resolution. Um, and let's follow on that, Shangan. And the next question follows on from something very important that uh, Molly was referring to a moment ago. And this is about labour market participation. Uh, the report shows a lot of older workers have left the workforce. Is this a problem? I'm going to ask Caroline first. Should policymakers do something to get older workers back into the workforce? Or is it this is a good or is this alternatively a good opportunity for younger people to take the jobs instead? And there is this fact that there's some trend that Molly was referring to. So how worried should we be about inactivity amongst the over fifties? Mm, well, clearly the Treasury is really worried about it, isn't it? The government's really, really worried about it and viewing it as a something that's holding back growth in our in our economy and we desperately need those people, uh, or some of them to be working and obviously you know i've been reading the research just as other people have been trying to dig into why is it that well, why aren't people around what's happened to them um and uh, you know my understanding from what i'm reading is that obviously there are some people who are who've left the labor market for the reasons that we've just discussed to do with mental and physical health i'm sure there's significant numbers of those and and there's a lot we don't know about long covid yet i think as well which i think some people feel is underreported and under under researched and we're just getting to grips with there are broader issues as well i think after you know a very extraordinary two plus years we all lived through it's caused lots and lots of people to rethink their lives to um, re-evaluate and in, you know there are plenty of anecdotal reports aren't there of people who've decided to retire a bit early albeit living on a pretty low income but deciding that mattered more to them so I think it's all those things coming together and certainly um, however it, it's still also unfortunately ageism in the labour market for older people if you lose your job as an older worker it's you're more you find it harder to get back into the labor market than anybody of, at a younger age it's, the research is clear about that too so there is more we can and should do and i hope the government will do uh, to support and encourage both employers of older older workers but also supporting older workers to skill up get more uh, get more training confidence the, the the system as it currently works is geared towards younger people there's no doubt about that the employment service and there have been some moves in the direction of supporting older workers but they need to go a bit further I think and Karen can I just come back to that because there was a very interesting analysis from the IFS recently which suggested that although the stock of older economically inactive people was largely uh, comprised of one suffering from poorer health the flow of new people going into economic activity was more associated, I think, with choice based partly on what they could earn or receive as their pension. Yeah. Um, and uh, there are some, some people have drawn policy implications to that. One policy implication is that trying to use the benefit system to leverage these people into work is not going to be very effective because not many are uh, of this group are on benefits. But the other argument was, well, should one look at, for example, 
the age at which you can start receiving your private pension? Should there, should there be changes in the regulations so you can only start collecting this rather later if you're to enjoy the tax relief? So, as, so this choice to disengage the labour market at 50 or 55 is not available to people. What do you think of that? Yeah, well, it's back to your friend George Osborne, isn't it, who brought in the freedom and choice reforms, uh, which was a, viewed as a extraordinary, you know, very bold, um, very clever Treasury wheeze at the time, um, which has come back and bit him, I think, essentially, and bit, bit the economy. Um, I mean, we were always, uh, clearly there are some people, some older people who are very keen to draw down some of their pension wealth. And at one level, why shouldn't they? But of course, our point at Age UK is you can only spend it once. And the problem is people doing that early on, um, hoping for the best, not always taking good advice. It's a, it's a, a pretty you know, risky thing to do and then getting into trouble later on. So um, we don't actually have a policy position on whether that should change. But I think our main, our main stance is that people should be um, nudged much more clearly into taking advice before they make really, you know, decision that could change the rest of their life, essentially. Uh, Molly, anything you want to add on this activity yeah. issue, which we're looking at here? Yeah, I think just the point about the flow and the increase in economic activity among older workers uh, is largely being driven by, or there's evidence to suggest that it's being driven by more retirements. And um, as government is keen to encourage these people back to work, there's evidence out there that actually once a person is retired, only about 5 to 10% ever actually return to paid employment. So I think focusing on those people, it's probably not going to make a big difference. But in terms of getting people to work, um, underemployment is a big issue. And uh, those people that would like to work more hours, perhaps government should be focusing on helping those people work more hours. Um, yeah. Right. The other issue I should have raised and didn't is about caring and the fact that lots of people leave work in their 50s and 60s to care for loved yeah. ones, whether partners or older, older relatives. Um, the single most effective policy to help that group probably, as well as doing something about social care, which, which I'm pessimistic about with this government, I have to say, um, is flexible working. That's one of the things that makes the biggest difference to older workers, no doubt about that at all. Yeah. Good. Well, thank you very much. I think we should be bending to a conclusion. I'm going to give our panellists a chance for one final observation. Uh, I'm sorry that all the online questions we haven't been able to answer. Quite a lot about housing, rent costs, which we've touched on, but we could clearly have gone into in even more detail. Some very appreciative comments, an extraordinarily sobering presentation, but an excellent resource for policymakers from one of our participants. And thank you very much for that. But so for each of our panellists, if there's kind of one thing that you would like to get across to the Chancellor as he heads to his big announcement on Thursday about how he can produce policies that are generationally fair and tackle the challenges people face with the cost of living, um, what's your top ask? Let's start with you, Karen. Yeah, it's really easy for me. Um, restore the triple lock. But don't just restore the triple lock, also raise uh, benefits in line with uh, price inflation. That would be fair to everybody. Price, uh, price, I think probably this year, of course, the triple lock would be this year a price formula. And we yeah. may, it sounds absurd, we may get price protection for all uh, benefit recipients 
whatever their yes. age, when of course our RF analysis of benefit changes uh, shows that over the past few years benefits have gone up by more than inflation for pensioners and by less than inflation for working age families. So uh, on this we can make common cause with Caroline. Um, Neil. I, I think the key for me is actually it, it's uh, something that we've been lacking over the last well, for, for a long time, is actually what is it we're trying to achieve with housing? What is the end point we're trying to get to in terms of the metrics that count? And then ensuring that uh, we may need to make some decisions in the short term that are contrary to them, but ensuring that over the longer term, all the decisions we're making for everyone that needs the help over the coming years don't compromise what we're trying to achieve at the end result. So by that, I mean Let's not reinflate house prices just to get the short-term economic boost. Let's ensure that we help first-time buyers over the longer term to access home ownership. But there's a whole host of other kind of related issues that arise from that point. Yeah, thank you. Molly? Um, so in addition to uh, uprating working age benefits and, state and the state pension by inflation next year, I think um, it would be really good for government to think about ways that they could help people increase their financial resilience um, in the face of, you know, not just the cost of living crisis, but other economic shocks. So if there's yeah. policies that can help um, encourage people to save, um, I think that will make um, not only this crisis, but future crisis easier to deal with across all age groups. Yeah. Excellent. Well, look, thank you very much indeed to our panellists for your contributions. Thank you for the people who've participated both online and physically here at Resolution. Uh, and of course, particular thanks to Molly, to Sophie, to the team at Resolution in partnership with Southampton for this really excellent intergenerational audit, which uh, is a tool not just for sort of conversation and policy analysis this week, but a lot of this analysis will uh, last and be relevant for months to come as we move up on to our next intergeneral audit in a year's time. Thank you all very much indeed. Thank you for listening to this Resolution Foundation event. You can find more episodes and the latest living standards research on the Resolution Foundation website.